Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. There's not much notes for the beginning of this because really we're going to look at Acts before we actually look um, at Galatians because when you look at these books of the Bible that Paul writes, oftentimes they're based upon one of his uh, missionary journeys. And so one of the first places he really goes to is the area of Galatia. So let's just turn to Acts chapter 14 and we'll see how Paul hooks up, I guess you'd say, or or gets connected with the... um, the Galatian church. Um, so let's look at Acts 14. Come on in, Def. Acts 14, 19. I, I really love this passage of Scripture. Um, I don't know if you guys remember. We spent almost a whole year in the book of Acts, and there was just a lot of good stuff in there. But this was one of my favorite stories in Acts just because Paul is a man. So let's see Paul the man here. Are you ready? Um, verse 19 of chapter 14. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconian, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and on Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, this is a great story because what happens to Paul? He preaches the gospel and they what? Stone him and people think he's dead. And he gets up and what does he do? Just goes right back into town and starts preaching again. It's like the Energizer Bunny. Oh, they can stone me, but I'm just, Jesus is more important. I'm going to go back in there to, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. They can stone me, but if they're going to stone me, I'm, they're going to stone me as I'm preaching the gospel. Um, then we get down to verse 24. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. This area right here, Derby, Lystra, Pamphylia, Pisidia, this is the area of Galatia. Okay, so Galatia is not really a town. Like Ephesus was a town, Philippi was a town. Galatia was more of an area. So this is probably a letter to a group of churches in a geographic area. So when we talk about the letter to the Galatians, it's not necessarily one church in a city. It's probably a regional church. It's probably a lot of these different churches that he went and strengthened these disciples where he got stoned. Um, One of the also things we need to understand about Galatians as well is that it is one of his earliest letters. There's debate whether... First and Second Thessalonians or Galatians is one of his first letters. But as you notice, one thing I want you to look at when we look at Galatians is I want you to think about the tone, the tone of Paul's letter. Now, when I say tone, what do you think I mean by tone? It's kind of a literary word, but like when you talk about somebody's tone of voice. If I say, everybody open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. Versus, you guys better open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. What's the difference in the tone? The first one's more, let's just all, Joel Osteen? Okay. Well, the first one, and the second one is, I don't know who the second one would be, some fiery preacher. The tone of the second one is, I'm a little agitated. I'm a little 
fired up and you better do what I say. That's Paul's tone in Galatians. He's fired up. He's agitated. He's a little, actually a little ticked off, if you will. Um, most of his letters start out with, um, blessed be the God and our Father. We thank you. I thank God for, for all the ways I remember you. He doesn't start out with any thanksgiving in Galatians. He starts out by ripping them, okay? So as Paul gets a little older and as he writes Romans and Philippians when he's in jail, he's toned down his rhetoric. He's had a little bit of experience. But as he starts out Galatians, he gets a little, a little, a little ticked, a little, a little fiery. And, so, and you'll see that as we read it. So let's just turn to Galatians 1, and hopefully the handouts will be here very soon. Um, but let's just read. You, you don't really need to write anything down yet, I guess, unless you've already written down what I've already told you, and then you probably did need to write something down. But hopefully you have your own paper. If not, we'll have the handouts. All right, so Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the, what does it say there? Churches of Galatia. Remember what I said, it's probably a geographic area, not just a specific church. So it's, it's to a group of churches. This is Paul's standard greeting. I'm an apostle. I'm, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm addressing it to who I'm addressing it to. And then he normally says grace and peace to you. So grace to you and peace from our God and Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 4, you could possibly say, is the gospel in a nutshell. What do we see there in verse 4? Who gave himself... Well, first of all, what's the gospel? That's my next question here. What's the gospel? Okay, it's the, come on in, Bill. It's the, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. Okay, and is it just any old good news? No, it's the good news of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his call to, for everybody to repent and believe in him, to have eternal life in him. So the gospel is the good news. It's an announcement of what God has done. And so notice what the gospel in a nutshell is there in verse 4. Jesus Christ who did what? Gave himself. What is that? Let's just stop right there. What, how did Jesus give himself? What does that mean? On the cross. He gave himself. And then what does it say there? For our sins. For. Oh, here we go. Thank you, Tarina. Okay, that's fine. I want to teach you a little Greek word. And you can remember it because in English, it's the word hyper. In Greek, it's the word huper. Um, it's, it's a little preposition, huper, and oftentimes, not always, but when you see the word for or on behalf of, it's that little Greek preposition, huper, and there's a lot of power in that little word. What that little huper word means is that it carries the idea that Jesus died as a substitute in the place of sinners. So in that little word, it actually carries the idea of for, on behalf of, as a substitute for. 
It's the whole idea that Jesus died in the place of who? What does it say there? What verse 4? Who gave himself. Often when Paul says Jesus gave himself, he's talking about the cross, right? He gave himself on the cross for our sins to do what? To deliver us. Okay, what is deliverance? What's another word for deliverance? Redemption, salvation, rescue. What's he rescued us from? This present evil age. We live in a present evil age. What was it all according to? The will of God the Father. So why did Jesus come and die for us? Why did he shed his blood? Why did he rescue us? Because it was God's will. And what's the ultimate purpose behind everything there in verse 5? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So from the very beginning, Paul just lays out there and says, Okay, guys, this whole message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins to rescue us according to God's will to God's glory. And that's pretty simple to, to believe, right? I mean, we all believe that, right? Jesus died on the cross for our sins, rose again, that we might have eternal life to be delivered according to the will of God for the glory of God. Do you think that the Galatians got that? As you will see, they did not. Not, well, not too well? Let me show you another place where that word who perish shows up. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians. We looked at this. We didn't look at this last week, but um, let's look at, just turn back one book. 2 Corinthians 5.21. There's these little passages of Scripture that I call Gospels in a Nutshell. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a gospel in a nutshell, like Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 is kind of a gospel in a nutshell. Romans 3.21 through 26. Um, so 2 Corinthians 5.21 is a powerful little passage of Scripture, and it's got that for language in there, on behalf of, as a substitute, in the place of. So, And we sing this song. Like, What's the song we sing? Jesus Messiah, name above all names. How does it start? He became sin. Who knew? No. You can sing it along. No, no, never mind. I'm just joking. All right, so let's, read, let's look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For, how does it start with? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How does that sentence start? For our sake. In other words, it's that who pair for our sake, in the place of, as a substitute for. Jesus died in the place of sinners. And not only did he die in the place of sinners, but Paul says there he became sin. Who knew no sin? Was Jesus, did Jesus ever sin? No, he never sinned. The, the, the innocent became guilty so the guilty could go innocent. Who's the guilty? We are. Jesus was perfectly innocent. He became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? So let me ask you this other question. How does a person respond to the gospel? If the gospel is good news and we're to announce it and to tell people Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again for sin, according to the will of God, for the glory of God, to rescue us, to give us eternal life. If I just announce that out there, does it demand a response? Or does it just hang out there? What type of response does the gospel demand? Or how does a person respond to that? Or how should they, okay? <laughs> what's the biblical... Okay, what, what's the... What did you say? Excitement. Okay, excitement. Why excitement? It's because it's good news. It's good news, Okay. Now, a lot of people reject that message, right? 
Okay, and, and, and we don't under, quite understand all the reasons why they do that. But what does the Bible say a person must do in order to receive Christ? They need to what? Repent and believe. It's that simple, right? Have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and told them about it and they looked at you and said, is that all? I mean, what else do I have to do? Have you ever, anybody ever asked that about Christianity? What else do I have to do in addition to just believing in Jesus. Has anybody grown up in a church culture where there was Jesus plus some things you had to do in order to be a Christian? Anybody want to... Okay. Sure. Okay. We discussed it yesterday morning. Okay. Um, I was... My family was a member of the Salvation Army. And um, they had... The Salvation Army had a list of rules and regulations that you had to follow. And growing up, I always had that impression that in order to be saved, I have to follow these rules. Okay. So there was a set of rules that had to be followed. It wasn't just um, Christ alone, right? It was right. rules. If you, if you obey these rules, then hopefully, was there a hopefully attack on there, or did you really actually know? You have to be saved first. Okay. But then after you're saved, then if you follow these rules, you keep saved. You get to go to heaven. Okay. So there's a difference between being saved and going to heaven. Right. Okay. All right. Somebody else. I saw, Lori, you shaking your head. You're from a Catholic background. I'm not going to pick on you, but what are some things that that you had to do growing up in order to be saved? Well, confession for one. You had to confession all the time. Okay. And so that was a big one, I remember. Okay, so going to a priest and going to confession. Okay. Anybody else not from a Catholic background, but from maybe just a regular Christian background that maybe added something to salvation? Anybody ever grow up in, um, like, the Church of Christ? Or they, have, they require baptism in order to get saved. Um, I had a Church of Christ friend, and he told me this. I think I may have told you this before. We had an argument when I was in college because um, he said, you absolutely have to be baptized in order to be saved and go to heaven. And so I said, let's play a hypothetical situation here. Okay, let's just let's play this out. Let's say on Sunday morning, the, the, God, the preacher gives the gospel presentation. There's a huge altar call. This guy goes down there and he gets saved. And you find out in your church of Christ that the baptistry doesn't work because there's no water. And you've got to wait to fill the baptistry and come back that evening and have a baptismal service. So he can't get baptized right there when he got saved. You've got to wait till the evening service to do the baptism. And in between the, the morning service and the evening service, he gets hit by a bus. Does that guy go to heaven? And he told me, no, he does not go to heaven because he did not get baptized because baptism was equal to salvation. It's called baptismal regeneration is what it was called. And this was really big back like during Charles Spurgeon's time as well. It was called baptismal regeneration. And it was the whole idea that in order to truly be saved, the Catholics have the same thing. It's just called infant baptism. But we just, you know, Protestants kind of make a different version of it. But it's, it's this whole idea that you've got to add something onto repentance and faith in order to be saved. Okay, so how simple is the gospel? Jesus lived a perfect life. He died the death we deserve to die. He rose again. He's Lord of Lords. He calls us to repent and believe. It's salvation by grace, right? Okay, so that's how you respond to the gospel. What does Romans 5, 8 say? I'll just... Um, I'll just um, quote it. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Okay, so that's, it's the gospel. We can't save ourselves. We can't be good enough to save ourselves. Now, let's, let's look at Paul's tone here, okay? Look at verse 6. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema or accursed. As we've said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay. I want to teach you something. And if you want to go on to the website, um, I'm teaching a class right now for Colorado Christian University. It's a, it's a class in church history, and it's an online class, so I don't have any in-seat lectures. So I've been kind of recording um, some lectures for that class. But this week I, I did a radio program and a lecture at the same time to kill two birds with one stone. And so I went and talked about what we're going to talk about next, and that is um, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Okay, How many of you guys have heard of the five solas? The five, anybody heard of the five solas? Anybody heard of the five alones? Okay, sola is a Latin word for alone. Okay? Sola, we get the word solo from it. Okay, so during the Protestant Reformation, the reformers gave five main issues or five main points of how a person is saved. These were in direct distinction from the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? So what these are, are these. I'll just put them up here. These are, you probably know these intuitively. But what Paul, I think, is, is getting at, Paul didn't come up with the five solas. The, the Reformation came up with the five solas. But if you understand the Protestant Reformation, it was a recovery of the gospel. The gospel had been lost for like over a thousand years, really. I mean, you want a little bit of church history or not? Okay, you're like, yes. Okay, okay. Um, let's say, okay, 100 A.D. Well, let's say 95, 95 A.D. is when the apostle, this is not in your notes, by the way, is when the apostle John died, give or take. That's around the writing of Revelation, the book of Revelation. So John is the last of the living apostles. Okay, so when John dies, the apostles are dead. Okay. The last book of the Bible is written, Revelation. Okay. Now, from, from about 150 to about 315 A.D., during that period of time, the Christians in Rome experienced intense persecution. I mean, even way back in the 60s, Nero was lighting up Christians on, as torches. But there were periods, some periods were more extreme than others. But basically during this period, you had a lot of persecution. You had Justin Martyr. He was one of the martyrs. Um, you had Ignatius of Antioch. You had Polycarp of Smyrna. Uh, you had a lot of these guys that were being martyred for their faith. They were being persecuted. But then something happened in 315 A.D. that changed the trajectory of the entire Christian world. Up to this point, Christians were a minority. They were being persecuted. And guess what happened during this period of persecution and struggle? Do you think Christianity lost ground or do you think it gained ground? In church history, just in church history, 
probably the first two or three hundred years of the church was the most expansive growth that the church has ever seen in its history. Just exponential growth. Because a lot of these people just, they lived for Jesus wherever they were. And so you had, all right, so under times of persecution, when you're in a minority, is it popular to be a Christian? You have to be what? A, a true Christian, an authentic Christian. It's like if you're in China today, there are, if you're in China or you're in a persecuted area, you're the real deal, right? Okay, there's no nominal Christianity where you just say, like, you know, I go to church like Christmas and Easter and because I was born in America, I'm a Christian, and your lifestyle doesn't show anything. Right, okay? Something happened in 315 A.D. Anybody know what happened in 315 A.D.? You know what it was? Yeah, it's, it was called the Edict of Milan. It was Constantine. Um, the Edict of Milan, Constantine was the first Roman emperor, and there's some debate as to whether he actually became a Christian or whether he was baptized on his deathbed, but... Constantine was really the first Roman emperor to legitimize or make Christianity. Really what he did is he made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. So it would be like that one day you're being persecuted, the next day Christianity is the official religion. Everybody has to be a Christian now. Can you just do that? Can you just buy a proclamation from the, from the emperor say, okay, now tomorrow everybody's a Christian. Exactly. What happens when you mix church and state together in a state church and the emperor says, okay, now everybody's a Christian. What happens? When you are born, you are automatically a Christian. So do you think, some people look at this and like right now in my class, I have some online debates that some people are saying it was, a. they, they said this was bad, this was good. And I'm kind of pushing them to be the devil's advocate and say this was good, this was bad. You, there's debates. I mean, I'm not saying one, one's good or one's bad. I'm just saying that when you look back at church history, what the Edict of Milan did was it basically said, okay, now we can tell people they have to become Christians just by simple virtue of them being born in the Roman Empire. No salvation, no regeneration, no repentance and faith. It's just kind of like a cultural Christianity. And that led to eventually what we call the papacy, What's the papacy? The Pope, the Roman Catholic Church. So from about 315 A.D. to, let's just say, 1517, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses, how many years is that? What, about 1,200 years? 1,200 years, and I'm not saying that there weren't Christians during that time, but 1,200 years, sometimes these are called the Dark Ages, you had the lowest amount of robust, evangelical, passionate Christianity. But then what the Reformers did was they went back and said, we need to rediscover the gospel. So they started going back to the writings of Augustine and others of the early church and saying, we need to recapture what the Bible actually teaches about salvation, that you can't just become a Christian because you're born. It has to be by faith. There has to be grace. It has to be um, this whole idea of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So what the Protestant reformers did was they said, okay, the Roman Catholic Church, let me just, I'm going to write this up on the board because I don't want to disparage the Roman Catholic Church at all in this. 
I just want to show you the distinction. So what I'm going to write up here, no pope or bishop or council or Vatican I or Vatican II or the Council of Trent or any of the trilateral councils, they're not going to disagree with what I'm going to say up here. Okay, so does the Roman Catholic Church believe in the Bible? Yes. Do priests today read from the Bible? Yes. But the key thing is when the Protestants put this alone next to it, it changed the whole meaning. Do Roman Catholics believe in Scripture alone? What's on equal footing with that? The church, the tradition of the church. And so what the Protestant reformer said is, we're going to go back to this idea that there's no council, there's no pope, there's no church, there's no ecumenical group that can come be an authority outside of the Bible alone. So the Bible, the written word of God, is alone the sole authority for my life as a Christian. Now today, other groups like Mormons have what? The Book of Mormon in addition to the Bible. And so when we say Scripture alone, what we're saying is the Bible alone is the sole authority for what we believe. Okay? And that was what was recaptured during the Protestant Reformation. Okay? Did the Roman Catholics believe in Jesus? Yes. When you look at the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of God, there's not much difference between Romans, Catholics, and Protestants when it comes to those doctrines. They believe the Trinity the same way we do. They believe Jesus died on the cross the same way we do. They believe that Jesus was born of a virgin the same way we do. So there's not a lot of difference here, okay? So when they're saying Christ alone, it wasn't like the Catholics didn't believe there was other ways of salvation. They just wanted to reiterate the fact that there has to be a personal faith in Christ. So today, when we say Christ alone, what are we saying? Jesus is the one of many ways, right? No, I'm just joking. Have you ever heard? I've, I've actually heard pastors. I heard a pastor. Actually, he's not a pastor. He's, a, he's, a, he's an author. He wrote a book. And he was being interviewed, and they asked him, is Jesus the only way of salvation? And he said, well, I don't like to use that terminology. That sounds too absolute. I would say Jesus is one of many good ways. He's the best way. If you really want to have a good life, he's the best way. But to say he's the only way, I I don't want to go that far because that means that I'm saying that other religions may possibly be wrong. Does that scare you? Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Larry. I'm coming over here because I'm recording it, just so they can hear you. Okay. Uh, we went to Christian Church, and that guy, and I, if I'm not mistaken, he does it in the pulpit. He's, I don't believe in a virgin birth, but if you want to, that's okay. Okay, yeah. And he was preaching. Yeah, it, it's okay if you want to. Yeah. So this, guys, we could just stop right here and say, are, these, are both of these under attack today? Oh, yeah. Scripture alone and Christ alone. And I would say this, if this stack of if the first one falls, everything else you believe is going to fall. Because what's your basis for understanding anything? Scripture. If you don't have a solid or high view of Scripture, if you don't believe in the inerrancy, the authority, the inspiration of Scripture, then your view of Christ is going to be wonky and your view of everything else is going to be wonky. Is that a word? Wonky? I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> Wacky, wonky, whatever. Wookie? A wookie? Okay. So, so... Scripture alone, Christ alone. Then the next one is grace alone. Now, did the Roman Catholics believe in grace? Yes. They believed that you had to have grace in order to be saved. But how did they define grace? They defined grace as through the sacraments. 
you receive grace every time that you take the sacraments. And when you sin, you lose that grace. So if you die without having taken the sacraments, you may go to purgatory because you didn't have enough grace to, to, get, to, get, to get filled up. Okay, so it was not grace alone. What do we as evangelical Protestants believe? Grace alone. We don't believe that you have to do any type of sacramental like baptism or confirmation. It's strictly a free gift of God where he saves us by grace. We are dead in sins. God must make us alive in Christ. Okay, faith alone. Did the Roman Catholics believe in faith? Yes, you have to have faith in God. But again, what do they add on to that? Faith plus what? The sacraments. Faith plus the Eucharist. Faith plus works. Faith plus any type of thing that you want to you add on to that is what you've got with faith plus. Um, and then the last one, which I would say the Roman Catholics probably believe too, the last one is to God's glory alone. That God alone receives the glory. That He alone is the one that we worship. And so I really, I think these five solas really clearly help you in your mind to just kind of articulate the gospel. I mean, could you, here, here's what you could say. If somebody asks you, well, what, what really do you believe? Regardless of whether, I mean, whether you're a Baptist or whether you're whatever, if you're an evangelical conservative Christian, you can say this. I believe that the Bible alone is God's authority, and because of that, I believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone, because the Bible tells me so. And that's a real quick, easy way to just hang, hang your belief system on that. Now, here's the issue in Galatians. I'm kind of jumping out of history here, but just as kind of helping us here, I think the issue with the Galatians was they were not adhering to the grace alone, faith alone issue. Because what does Paul say there? The Galatians were... Well, first of all, what were these... There's a group of people that are coming in and, and causing trouble in the, in the Galatian church. They're called the Judaizers. Okay, anybody ever heard that word before, Judaizers? It's a group of probably Jewish legalistic people that were coming to the Galatians and saying... You know, Paul's teaching you that it's simply faith alone in Christ and it's by grace and it's, you know, just having faith in Jesus. And that's all fine and good. And that's Paul. He's kind of a weird guy. But what you really have got to do is you, you've got to get circumcised and you've got to obey the dietary laws and you have to adhere to a lot of the old ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And if you don't do those three things, then you're not truly a Christian. So do you see how they're suddenly shifting it? They're not outright denying that, that, that you have to have faith in Jesus. They're just saying that to truly be a Christian, it's faith plus these things that we're adding on to there. And what is Paul? So what, what are they doing? Paul says, Galatians, you're deserting. What does he say there? I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting. Now, does this mean that they're losing their salvation? No. What this means is... Um, they're changing their position. The word denotes a soldier who deserts during wartime. They're in the process of kind of running away. They're going AWOL on the gospel here. And what are they turning to? What does he say there? You're turning to a different. You know what the word different is in Greek? You know what it is in English. 
It's the word heteros. What do we get? Heterosexual. What's a heterosexual? Two different. A ho- we know homo, hetero. We, I mean, I know we know those words, just the Greek. Greek words mean same, different. The word he uses here for different is the word heteros. In Greek means different of another kind, meaning that this is not even anywhere close to what the true gospel really is. You're deserting the gospel. And, and he's saying as if there, I mean, there really is no different gospel, but, but you guys are, are, are believing this. Not that there's another one, but, but, but the, what people are doing is they're, the issue was Christ plus. Christ plus. And I think we talked about this earlier, so let's maybe talk about it again. What are some distortions we might see today to the gospel? What do you think people, what are some things you think people might say today that would be, like the Judaizers back then would say, well, it's, it's circumcision, it's dietary laws, and it's the sacrificial Old Testament rules. Nobody today is probably going to say, you know, in order to be a Christian, Sean, you've got to be circumcised. Nobody's probably going to say that unless they, they have some you know, weird view of things. But what are some things today, what are some distortions that you might see? What are, right, let me ask it a different way. What are some different gospels that you guys see out there today that are slightly different? They're not the true gospel. They're maybe a watered-down gospel, a distorted gospel that, that, that you see out there. Okay, so you're saying like... Like if you drink if you drink one sip of alcohol, you're going to hell. Yep. Okay, so so it's it's Jesus plus teetotaling. Okay. Uh, that's that's a good one. Okay, so Jesus plus teetotaling. All right. What's another gospel distortion that you see? Maybe on TV or maybe in books or maybe on the internet. Okay, universalism, which would be what? Yeah, universalism is, um, there's really no lost people. Everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's saved. There is no such thing as a lost person, um, except for maybe for really bad people like Hitler. But for the most part, everybody's going to go to heaven. What about this? Have you ever heard this? If you sow your seed into my ministry, you will have health, wealth, and happiness if you just keep giving me money. Is that a different gospel? Now, they probably teach Jesus, but what are they saying? Ultimately, your success in the Christian life is based upon how much you give to my ministry. I talked about the baptism one earlier. Anybody else have any other weird things that maybe you grew up with? Like anybody ever grew up in a fundamentalist type of church where there was like really, really like no card playing? No, okay, no card, okay, no card playing, you couldn't, women couldn't wear pants, okay, so Jesus plus, like in Texas, it's hilarious, because I grew up in Texas, in Texas, like, Southern Baptists in Texas, you could not play cards, so what they did was they made up dominoes, so they play 42, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of 42, it's dominoes, so like in Texas, everybody knows how to play dominoes, but card playing, when we were growing up, that was a bad, because card playing was equated with you know, the bars and, and pool playing, but, you, you know, you can play dominoes. So it's like, what's the difference between a playing? So um, what are some other distortions that you might see of the gospel? Distortions. Secret knowledges or stuff like talking about Scientology, the occult money, and secret knowledge. 
Okay, so Gnosticism, like secret knowledge, like, um, yeah, like Scientology or the secret. Isn't there like some thing out there called the secret? Um, I don't, what was it? The blood. I don't know what that is. But, but what are some other? Okay, like word faith. Like um, that's kind of like the name it, claim it, sow your seed into my ministry. Um, you're, you have power in your words to create reality. And if you're sick, it's your fault because you didn't have enough faith type thing. The ones that play with rattlesnakes? Okay. The snake handlers? Okay. Um, what are some other? Praying what? Okay, praying to the Virgin Mary instead of, Je- into, instead of Jesus. So there's some, some issues there. Um, what are Okay. Okay, the Mormon faith. Yeah. Has anybody? Yeah, going on. Yeah, required. Yeah. Has anybody ever been to the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City? It's wonky. You've been there? Okay. <laughs> now, here's the scary thing about the visitor center. There's an east visitor center and there's a west visitor center. If you go to the east visitor, I can't remember which one is which, so don't quote me on that. One of the visitor centers, you'd walk in there and they make it so, make it sound like it's Christian. And, they, and then you go down into the downstairs, and you're like, it's starting to get a little bit more weird. And then you go to the other one, and it's like they got this big statue of Joseph Smith. You know, they've got, it's, it gets really kind of crazy. But the thing that the Mormons do that's so scary is that they will use the same terminology that we use but change the definition. So when they say salvation, like I had two Mormon Did I tell you guys about the story when I first came to the church, the two Mormon missionaries that showed up in my office? Yeah, I'll tell you the story again. Yeah, no, at the other, at the other building. Um, well, for one thing, it was it was a it was a it was a um, summer day, and my parents were there, and we were barbecuing, and they showed up at my door. You know how they show up in their, you know, elder so and so, and he's like nineteen, you know, elder so and so, and his friend, <laughs> and they never give their real names because they're not allowed to do that. And he was like trying to, you know, and I said, you know what, I'm the pastor of Emmanuel. It's right across the street. Um, why don't you guys show up sometime next week, and um, and we'll talk. So they did. They walked in, and um, they asked to see me, and so both of them came into my office, and I sat down, and I don't think they were prepared for what, they, what was going to happen. So, um, because I started throwing down some strong theology on them because I wanted to see where they were. You know? and, and poor, they're usually in the Mormon faith, there's the stronger one and there's the weaker one that's learning. Well, the weaker one just had this deer-in-a-headlight look like, <laughs> what's... And I was like trying to get to him because I'm thinking if I can get to him... Before he gets brainwashed, there may be some hope. So um, anyway, they gave me a Book of Mormon and said, read this. And so I took it. I still have it just so I have a copy of the Book of Mormon. Um, what I did was I went mentally with all the things that they told me, and I went and wrote a letter as best as I could to address all the issues with the Scriptures and everything because when the time came, it, you know, it, didn't, it didn't work out. Well, about three, four weeks later, I saw them at Sonic just like walking at Sonic. And he had a different guy with him, a different younger guy, but it was the same main guy. And I said, hey, why don't you guys come back and visit? We didn't really finish our conversation. He said, okay, we'll come back. So later on that afternoon, they came back. And so we started, I started addressing the issue, and they got real uncomfortable. And finally, what the main guy did to me is he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. Let's get on our knees right now, and let's pray for a burning in the bosom. And would you be open to asking God to reveal to you if Joseph Smith was a prophet? Now, what do you think I did at that moment? I, I looked at them and I said, okay, I really appreciate you guys coming. I want you to know about Jesus, but the Bible says you should not put the Lord your God to the test. 
I know that Joseph Smith's not a prophet, and I'm not going to bow down in my own office and pray for a burning in the bosom. And, and he kept, like, pushing me to do it. And I finally had to get a little strong with him and say, okay, this, this is over. I, I'm not going to do that. And he's like, you know, just, just try it. Just try it. And, I'm, and I keep saying, I said, I, said I'm a, I have a God I don't have to try. He's a sovereign God that, you know, and, I, and, and then they didn't quite understand the sovereignty of God and all that kind of stuff. And so anyway, they left and never came back. But um, I guess to answer your question, Dave, that is definitely a false, a false belief system. I, I was, that just reminded me, I was, I was struck by, by something David said in, in India. Okay. Because uh, the subject came up of the other churches that were in the area, or, you know, that were doing, supposedly doing the same things we were, but... But somebody asked him, "Well, are, are the Mormons here?" And he said, "Oh yeah." He says, "Well, you know, he says, but they, but they don't. They aren't out in the villages. Doing, what they do is they wait for a, a church to be established, and once they get, you know, the gospel in there, and then they show up and and start their distortion. Yeah. So they they wait till the group is there with the with yeah. the basics, and then come in and say, "Okay, yes, this is true, but." I'm going to give you the rest of the story. That's exactly what's happening in Galatians. Paul started the church with the true gospel, and then what happened? These guys came in afterwards. And so the Christians are doing the hard work of going in there and planting the churches and seeing evangelism, and, and the church is established, and then they come in after the fact and say... And of course, everybody's so confused or, or just learning. Yeah. And so somebody comes in and distorts sure, it all. Sure, sure. Yeah, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of confusing things about that. And so that's what Paul says. But notice what Paul says here. This is some pretty strong language. What does he say in verse 8? If we, if I, or an angel from heaven preach to you another gospel, let him be cursed. That word in the Greek is anathema. Have you ever heard of anathema? Basically means sent to hell. So if... And I'm kind of quoting R.C. Sproul because he said this before. He says, if an angel walked into your worship services and he was dazzling and he was beautiful and he was glorious and he was eloquent and you knew it was an angel and he stood up in the pulpit and said, I'm an angel. And he started professing a different gospel. What should the church do? Silence him and kick him out. (laughs) And Paul says, even if I come in, if I've lost my mind and come in and start preaching something different, you need to tell me, basically, pardon the French here, but basically what Paul says is, go to hell. I mean, it's basically what he's saying. That's what anathema means. I mean, I'm sorry for that expression, but um, that's really what Paul says. So really, the, the book of Galatians is called the Magna Carta of the gospel next to Romans because Paul is so concerned that they get the gospel. Now, let's just ask this question. Why is getting the gospel so important for everything else we do as a Christian? Why do we need to get the gospel right? What happens if we mess up on the gospel? Does anything else really matter? I mean, what happens if we mess this up? Why is Paul so ticked on just the gospel? Let's think about Corinthians for a moment. What was going on in the book of Corinthians? Incest, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, division, was Paul this harsh with the Corinthians? And they had some serious sin, didn't they? He was like a father that was kind of saying, guys, let's, let's, let's get, our, get our act together. With the Galatians, there's no sexual sin here. There's no incest. There's no Lord's Supper um, getting drunk. What are they messing up on? The gospel, and Paul rips them. 
You find that interesting? That Paul rips them on the gospel, but on the other issues is a little bit softer. Not that he's like saying the other things are okay, but he comes in full guns blazing because they're getting the gospel wrong. So let's just ask this question. Why is getting the gospel right so important for everything else we do as a Christian or we do as a church or whatever? Okay. 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 You have what? False conversions. Why? Let me ask the second question. Do you think most churches or ministries are doing a good job at presenting the gospel? Maybe you don't know that. It's kind of an unfair question. You'd have to know all the ministries in the world. But in general, just I guess from your, from your observation, do you think most churches or ministries are doing a good job at presenting the gospel, the true gospel? Why would I mean everybody's like automatically no? That's dispre- that's distressing. Well, why do you why do you say no? Okay, experience. Okay, <laughs> tell us your experience just briefly. We don't have to have the whole. Well, just... No, I'm, I'm just... <laughs> okay. Well, the church that we left, they weren't strong on, enough on certain points. They didn't preach the importance of understanding salvation to the point where people were it was just it was whitewashed, it was wishy-washy you had people who didn't believe that um, in the inerrancy of scripture they didn't believe like that there was only one way to heaven and it was experienced in some of the Bible studies that I was in you get people talking and, and, and they rather than pastor being or the teacher being firm with them about no that's not correct you're just gonna walk around it everybody would pull their maybe, ignorance maybe pull them into his office later i don't know but yeah just... so have you ever been in a bible study where it's been really awkward where somebody says something that's not quite right yeah. do you um what do you do do you let it go or do you say i rebuke you in the name of no i mean what do you do do you do, how do you gently how do you or you're the right... Yeah, trying to present the truth and everybody else is trying is to rebuking change you. the subject. Okay. So you guys speak from experience at a church that kind of... not It wouldn't outright be heretical, but slowly it started... It was cr- Okay. And then... Okay. Anybody, other reasons why people say the churches today aren't doing a very good job of presenting the gospel. They don't want to offend anybody. Okay, they don't want to offend anybody. And what do people want to hear? I'm okay, you're okay, and we're all one happy, big happy. Okay. Is the gospel in and of itself an offensive message? Why is it offensive? What does it assume? Two things it assumes that people don't like. Jesus is Lord, and I'm a sinner. <laughs> Those two things are pretty offensive, right? Because it means I'm not Lord, and I'm, I'm not okay. <laughs> and I need a Savior. Um, are you? Con- I mean, all of you basically saw the body language in the room. Yes. Are you concerned? Are you alarmed? Are you? What's your feeling about that? Do you feel like there's hope? Do you feel like it's going to hell in a handbasket? Do you feel like there's? I mean, what do you? What's your view of the world out there in in the church culture? I just listened to um, two videotapes um, or an audio conference of R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur talking about the Roe v. Wade. Okay. Um, anniversary, and both of them 
you know, we're talking about how the church has got gotten sucked into culture and basically, oh, well, if they're believing, that's okay. And I mean, they were talking about how the percentage of women that were supposedly Christians that were having abortions and um, just how mm -hmm. they get sucked into the worldview <coughs> of it. And, okay, well, I guess it's okay. So mm -hmm. then the church starts to believe mm -hmm. that, too, a little bit. You know, yeah, there's a lot of churches that are not doing a good job, but actually starting to see improvement. Yeah. I, really. Yeah. I mean, this church, the church that we attend now, and that other, mm -hmm. you know, there's, mm -hmm. there seems to be a movement. Mm -hmm. I think there's a recovery among a younger generation that's, that's wanting to get, let, let me tell you a story. Back in October when I spent some couple days with Vody Bauckham um, at the state convention, and if you don't know who Vody Bauckham is, he's an he's a African-American pastor, and um, he's, a, he's a pretty, like, apologetic guy. He's, he's taught at a lot of seminaries, and he was telling me that in the black community especially, um, he is an anathema because he speaks out against abortion. And he says, you would not believe how many Christians, pastors in the black community are pro-choice and their rationale is we don't want to raise these kids in the ghetto. It's better to abort the baby than to raise them in the life that these African Americans live on the streets or in gangs, so let's just, let's just abort them. And he was just heartbroken that I think his statistics were out of all of the abortions done in America, I think like 60% are by African American women. And to him, it's like genocide. It's like our whole race, the black race, is being, being killed out. And so, anyway, um, that's another cultural thing where sometimes Christians just kind of go along with the flow with the culture. Um, but you see hope. Is there hope or is there not hope? Okay, there's hope. Why do you think... A couple other reasons. People feel offended. People you know, go with the culture. I think we've talked about this in, our, in, in this class before. What happens when a church isn't well taught? Okay. Let me, let me ask you a question. A church that has no theology, or does not that every church has a theology, every church has a belief system. But if they don't teach or preach what they believe or what the Bible believes strongly, what does it naturally lead to? I will tell you from church history, and I will tell you from experience, churches that abandon theology naturally drift to liberalism and then ultimately to universalism. You see this. Does anybody know Harvard, Yale, and Princeton? Anybody know about those colleges? When you think about those colleges, what do you think about? Ivy League. And now what do you think about? That's the hotbed of liberal America. Back in the 1700s when those colleges were found, they were evangelical Christian colleges that were seminaries for pastors. Does anybody know that? In Stanford, yes. Almost all of the... In Brown. Brown was almost all of the major colleges. And as a matter of fact, Yale... Or was it Princeton? It's either Princeton or Yale. was found, founded by Jonathan Edwards' son. And slowly and slowly... Did I tell you guys the story of Southern, the, the seminary I'm going to? Did I tell you the history of that? I'm, I've told it a lot in the past few weeks because I was out there. Do you mind if I tell you that story? Because it's, it's a good example. Okay. 
I'm, I'm getting my doctoral at this, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. It was founded in 1857 in um, South Carolina, but during World War II, it moved up to Louisville because it wanted to be kind of in the north. I guess Louisville's the north. We kind of get away from, from some of the stuff in the south. And it was founded on the principles of inerrancy, the principles of the gospel, the principles of Jesus is the only way, all, all the foundational things we would believe. Then... In about the late eight, about 20 years later, there's a, there's a professor named Dr. Toy. And Dr. Toy was influenced by evolution because evolution was kind of coming out that time. And he started teaching in the college or teaching in the seminary some evolutionary things. Now, he was engaged to Lottie Moon. You guys know who Lottie Moon was? She was the missionary to China. She said, I can't, can't marry you because you're... You're a heretic, basically, or you're, 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 you're off the deep end. And so they had to kick him out of the seminary in the late 1800s. And, and then in the 1920s, there was a guy named E.Y. Mullins who came, and he slowly started drifting the seminary towards liberalism. Until Up until like the 70s and even in the 80s, it was very, very, very liberal. There were professors there that did not believe Jesus is the only way. They did not believe in the virgin birth. They did not believe in, the, in all these things. And as a matter of fact, there was a female professor that was doing lesbian marriages in the basement of the seminary. Um, it had gotten that, that far off. And so in 1984, well, let's go back up. 1979, in Southern Baptist circles, we call this a conservative resurgence. It's an important, in my life, I'm indebted to the men that did this. Anybody ever heard of Adrian Rogers, Charles Stanley, those guys? Those guys, basically, in 1979, Adrian Rogers was elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Adrian Rogers was a conservative, evangelical, inheritance, believed in inerrancy, believed strongly in the Bible, and basically what happened was this started a slow move towards moving the Southern Baptist Convention back to its conservative roots. Okay, In 1984, the president of, it was in Kansas City, they had this big convention. The president of Southern Seminary, the seminary I'm at right now, basically came back distraught to the faculty and said, the war is on, we better get ready to fight because the, the days are almost over where we're, gonna have, we're no longer going to have a liberal seminary. It's going to be taken over by the conservatives. And so in 1992, Al Mohler, who's the current president, was elected president. And Al Mohler, and I just read this a few days ago, in 1993, he did the convocation message. And the convocation is when you have all the faculty and all the students there to start the school year. And his message was, don't do anything, just stand there. And he stood there and he basically said, this institution was founded on the Bible. This institution was founded on conservative principles. All these types of, I mean, he just like laid down the gauntlet and said, this is where we're going as a seminary. Well, after the class, a bunch, about half the faculty showed up at his office and said, you can't say that around here. You can't say the Bible is the, the truth. What, what are you, I mean, you can't make those statements around here. That's not what we believe. And he says, okay, you're all fired. And they said, well, wait a minute. You, you can't fire us. We have a contract. He said, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. A contract? It means something to you. It means a different thing to me. It's just a piece of paper. It's a contract. No, wait a minute. This is a binding contract. Well, that's your interpretation. 
you're all fired. You can't fire us. We have a bind. This is a contract. It has a fixed meaning. It has fine print. Not to me, it doesn't. His point got across that what they were doing was they were doing the same thing to the Bible, saying, well, and he's saying, that's what you're doing with the Bible. You're saying, well, it doesn't have a fixed meaning. And and that next year, 95% of the faculty had a turnover. They were all fired. (laughs) And so now, almost 20 years later, it is one of the strongest conservative evangelical seminaries in the country. That's why I'm going there. But you can see how through a period of drift, it's very, very easy to drift to the left, I guess you'd say theologically. Um, And the sad thing about that is who's paying the price for that today? It's those pastors that have gone out into those churches and taught those people. So you have a lot of churches in that area that don't believe the Bible. I've always found it weird. Why would you go to a church and sit through a message if you really didn't believe the Bible and you really didn't believe in Jesus? Why would you do it? Okay, because you're raised. Tradition, I want to please. You know, it's a social thing. My parents did. But I'm just thinking, you know, why would you, if you had no passion for Jesus and he wasn't in your life and you didn't want to live for him and you didn't believe this book, then, then what's the purpose of it? I guess it's just like the Lions Club or the YMCA or the Elks Club. I mean, it's just like another social organization. I'm going to go to socialize and go to be seen and go to hang out with my friends. But as far as any spiritual transformation, you know, I'm starting to preach. Everybody better stop. Okay. So, um, Yeah. Well, let's move on. I had a question um, here. What then is the true gospel? We are justified by faith, not through the law. Um, Let's turn to Galatians 2 because we're going to be here forever if we don't. Um, Actually, let's start in verse... um, Let's start in verse 15. Galatians 2.15. This is a pretty strong statement, too, about salvation, about justification by faith alone. Uh, Galatians 2.15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. How more clear can Paul be? You don't have a relationship with Christ through what you do, through good works, through the law. It is through what? Faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, Paul says it like three different ways. He's emphatic. It's salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, not by works. Okay? Now, go down to verse 20 because I think verse 20 is one of those key ones you may have memorized growing up. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I have been what? Crucified with Christ. Now that's an interesting statement. Were you there when Jesus was crucified? Trick question. Were you there? When, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. tremble. You guys remember that old song? Anyway, um, let me ask it a different way. 
Were you physically there when Jesus died on the cross? Were you spiritually there when Jesus died on the cross? So if I have been crucified with Christ. Now, it's in the perfect tense. And what the perfect tense means is that I died at a point in time and the results of that death keep continuing on in the present. It's a strong way of saying, I have been totally, absolutely crucified with Christ, which implies what? What's a crucifixion imply? A death. My old life has been what? Crucified. My old life has died. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he took my life and buried it with his life. And when he rose again, we've risen to new life. It's kind of a weird thing to think about. But Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ who gave himself for me. Okay? Who gave himself. There's that for again, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So who lives in us now? Christ. Now, does this mean that we don't live? What's he saying? It's a mystery. I can't quite explain it. It's called the, it's called the mystical union with Christ is the way the theologians call it. Don't be scared off by the word. When I mean mystical, I don't mean... It just, it's a mystery. It's the whole idea that when you become a Christian, your life is plunged into Christ and Christ's life is plunged into yours and you share this oneness that cannot be explained. And it comes through the cross. When Christ died on that cross, he died for you, took your sins, nailed them to the cross, buried them, and, and, ro- and rose you to new life. And, and Paul uses that terminology there. Christ loved me and he gave himself for me. Paul doesn't just come out and say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Earlier he said, Jesus gave himself for me. Do you like that? I think that's kind of a cool terminology. He gave himself for me. What did Jesus give? He gave himself on behalf of me. Well, what did Jesus give? Let me teach you two terms here. What's the total work of Christ? There's two things that we have to understand that Christ did for us. The first one I think we understand. The first one's called the passive obedience of Christ. There's the passive and the active obedience of Christ. When we say passive obedience, what we're saying is that is the passive obedience is the cross. Jesus dying in our place on the cross as a sacrificial substitute it's the substitutionary death on the cross. Is that enough? And this is a trick question. Don't think I'm a heretic when I say this, okay? Is that enough to save you? Hmm. Is Jesus' death on the cross enough to save you? Okay. The active obedience of Jesus, that is his perfect, sinless life of complete obedience to God. We are saved just as much by Jesus' life as by his death. What would happen if Jesus had not lived a life of sinless perfection and complete obedience to the Father? 
could that righteousness ever be credited to us? Would he be able to go to the cross and die as a sacrifice? Okay, so we are saved just as much by the life of Christ as we are by the death of Christ. They go together. It's kind of a trick question. So we are saved by the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we, we, we don't talk about the active obedience of Christ because we really focus on the cross, and we should. I mean, the cross is the central of all things, but behind the cross, leading up to the cross, is His active obedience. If Jesus had, not, if Jesus had failed at any point here, would the cross have ever been a reality? No. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And what happens when we are connected with Christ? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. What gets credited to us when we have faith in Jesus? His active obedience. That perfect, sinless life of complete obedience is credited to our account. So when God looks upon us, He sees us as having done everything required of the law that Christ did. And God can say not guilty based upon what Christ did. Is that good news? Because on your best day, and I say this a lot, on your best day when you're doing everything great, you had your quiet time, you didn't yell at your wife, you didn't, you know, you visualized using your turn signal, you didn't, um, you did, I mean, you didn't yell, yeah, I mean, you visualized it, you didn't actually do it, you visualized using your turn, you, you had a, at the end of the day, you, you laid your head in your pillow, I'm like, I've had a great day. Does God love you more because of your performance? Does God say, oh, wow. Okay, you performed well today, so I'm going to love you more. On your worst day when you blow it and you put your head on your pillow like, man, this has been a really terrible day. I've, I've sinned. I, does God say, well, I love you less based upon your performance? Does God love you more based upon your performance or less based upon your performance? Or does he love you unconditionally based upon Christ's performance? He loves you based upon Christ's performance. And so you can rest your head on your pillow at night knowing that God loves me because of Christ. Now, that's not an excuse to go out and live however you want. I've said this before a lot. I love sinning. God loves forgetting. It's a great relationship. Let's just go have fun. No. The active obedience of Christ is credited to us. And so it's, and so it's this whole mystery. Christ lives in us. This is the mystery of union with Christ. I talked about that. Jesus loved me. Jesus gave himself for me. It's all about it's all about grace okay now let's just go into chapter three real quick (laughs) he kind of gets ticked off here again oh foolish galatians who's bewitched you it was before your eyes that jesus christ was publicly portrayed as crucified let me ask you only this did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith are you so foolish what's he saying Did you become a Christian? Did you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by doing good things? Or did that come by hearing the message and responding with faith? Which one is it, Galatians? Because you sure are acting like it's the first. I'm a Christian because I've done all these good things. I've got the Holy Spirit because I've done all these things. And Paul says, no, you've got the Holy Spirit. You're a Christian because of hearing the gospel and responding with faith faith alone now what i want to go down to look at is verse um, 10 because paul just flat out says all who rely now what's the word rely mean depend on count on you bank all those people who bank their lives on what the works of the law 
are under a what? Curse. So if you live your life for the sole purpose of trying to reach the standard of perfection that's in the scriptures, what does the Bible say? You will never reach that standard of perfection. Now, what's the purpose of the law? There's three uses of the law. You might know what the three uses of the law are. When I say law, I use I, I say law capital. That's yeah. That's one of yeah. There, there's three uses of the law. Where's my other blue one? That works. Okay. So the law, the Ten Commandments or God's commands. What's the purpose of them in the world today? There's three uses of the law. This kind of comes from John Calvin and other reformers. But the first one is basically to curb anarchy, okay? Why does God give us the Ten Commandments in general for all of society? So that we don't kill, murder, pillage, rape, and take advantage of each other. It's just basically the purpose of the law is there to keep society in check, okay? The second use of the law is what? Was it, Jeff, that you said schools? Yeah, a schoolmaster or a, um, a tutor, it's to show us our need for a savior. It's like a mirror. God holds up the mirror of the law and says, okay, um, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any false images. You shall um, not profane the Lord's name in vain. You shall keep the Sabbath holy. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall commit adultery. You shall not lie. You shall not steal. You shall not bear fault. You shall not um, covet. All of those Ten Commandments are a way for us to look at them and say, Ooh, I can't keep any of those. I'm under a curse if I do. It drives me to despair the fact that I can't, and it leads me outside of myself to a Savior. Does that make sense? So the law is there to show us that we need a Savior. So there's a, there's a general use of the law for, for society. There's an evangelical or evangelistic it's to lead people to see their need for Jesus. And then the third use of the law is for Christian living. Just because you become a Christian, does that mean the law gets thrown out? This is more your sanctification. How many things in the Bible does, does the Bible tell us to do? When I say law, can this be law? You shall abstain from sexual immorality. Is that law? Yes. Any type of command. It may not be the Ten Commandments, but it is a... Maybe you guys get scared by the word law. It's a command that we have to obey, not in order to be saved. Okay. Are we, Paul's made it very clear here. Are we saved by keeping these laws? No. no. But as a Christian, do we just throw them out the window and say, well, now I'm saved. I can live however I want. No, we don't do that. So Paul says here, everyone who relies, if you bank your life on trying to live perfectly by the law, you're under a curse. For cursed is everyone who does not abide by all these things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming what? Becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. How did Christ rescue us from the law? 
he became a curse. Is that terminology new to you? What's another way of saying that? And he took upon the penalty of our sins. He took upon the wrath of God. He took upon the penalty. He became a curse because there's a quote there from Deuteronomy. I think, what is your, um, do you guys have a footnote down there to say where that's from? I think it's from Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. A cross. If in the Old Testament days in Jerusalem and Israel and even up into the New Testament days, if you were hung on a cross, it was a symbol to the nation of Israel that you were abandoned by God. You were under God's curse. You were under God's punishment. How did they normally kill people back then? Stoned them. Do you know what they did? How did they usually... Did anybody, usually in the nation of Israel, did anybody ever get hanged in the nation of Israel? How did they? How were they prescribed to kill people? By stoning. But what did they do when they went and took the Gentile nations, the Canaanites? Do you remember how they? What did they do to those Canaanite people? Oftentimes they would hang who? The king. They would stone all the people, but they would hang the king because the king was the representative of the people and it meant that he was the one that was cursed of God. Therefore, the people were cursed of God because the king died in the place of the people as a curse. See where I'm going here? The king of the people died in their place as a curse because he represented the people. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Okay, in the Roman culture, in the New Testament, to the, to the Jew, if the, when the Jewish person saw someone hanging on the cross, they said that person is abandoned by God. They are God forsaken. God has put a curse upon them. They must have done something really bad. They're abandoned by God. When a Gentile or a Roman looked at the cross, they didn't think that God abandoned them. That wasn't their category. Their category was that must either be a slave or a scum of the earth because only the lowest of the low hangs on a, sl- on a cross. So either way, is the cross a stumbling block? It's, a, it's an offense to the Jewish person because, ooh, he's God forsaken. It's offense to the Gentile person, ooh, he's scum of the earth. So how did Jesus die? On the cross. Now, when he was there hanging on the cross, what did he cry out to his father? Yeah, Father, forgive them. Do you remember what he said that one time? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me now what is what did that passage right there says if you're hanging on a cross you are abandoned by god what did jesus experience when he was hanging on that cross the forsakenness the abandonment why was it because of jesus's sin no it was because of our sin and this is what always gets me the very first time and the only time Jesus ever experienced sin in his life, it wasn't his, it was mine. And think about all the sin that you and I have committed in our lives, just in our thoughts. Compound that times our entire life. Multiply that by all of God's people. And you've got a lot of curse coming down upon Jesus in a moment of time. That's why he had to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But why did he do it? Look at verse 14. Jesus did that 
so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to who? The Gentiles, that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Now let's ask this question here real quick. What is the blessing of Abraham? What was what did God what did God say to Abraham? Father Abraham. Yeah. Galatians twelve. Let's just turn to uh, Genesis twelve. By the way, this is not Old Testament. That was a couple years ago, but Genesis twelve is probably one of the most important passages in the, in the book of Genesis, if not in the first five books of the Bible. It's the Abrahamic covenant, the first part of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, yes, this is a covenant with God to the Israelites. But the very last part of the Abrahamic covenant is not for the Israelites, it's for who? Let's read this. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. Okay, that's the nation of Israel. I will bless you. Abraham was personally blessed. I will make your name great. We still talk about Abraham today. You will be a blessing. We found out he was a blessing to a lot of people. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Does the Bible there say only the Israelites will be blessed? What was God's plan from the very beginning to call out the Israelites? That the Gentiles and all the nations would be blessed in Abraham. Now, when Paul says the promise of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that because he died not only for the Jewish people, but he died for the nations the families of the earth, those that were not Gentiles. And so Paul here is is writing to the Galatians who are, for the most part, probably Gentile. There's probably a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. But even from God's heart from the very beginning, it was that the Israelite people would be set apart so that they would be a light to the nations and that all the nations would be saved through. And when we talk about nations, you guys know what I mean, right? We're not talking about France, like geopolitical nation states. We're talking about people groups, ethno-linguistic people groups. Okay, let me see. I might want to skip some of this stuff. Ooh, wow, we've got 10 minutes. Wow. Um, well, let's just kind of move. We'll, 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 I'm going to skip some of that middle stuff. Um, well, there's the Genesis thing. Slavery, we were sons of God. You go back to Matthew 27. That's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's look at Galatians 5. And if we don't finish Galatians 5, we'll, we'll pick up with it next week. Um, but this is really kind of probably some familiar territory where he talks about um, the whole fruit of the Spirit. So let's at least start. Let's, let's do five minutes worth of, see how far we get, five minutes. Galatians 5.16. But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's just stop right there. Walk. When Paul uses the terminology walk, he's talking about our lifestyle. And what does he say? Our lifestyle is to be governed by the Holy Spirit. It's a continual lifestyle of submitting and relying on the Holy Spirit in our lives. So he uses a lot of terminology here to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit. Walk. 
have your lifestyle controlled by the Holy Spirit. Okay? For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Why do you sin? There's the verse. Why is it painful when you sin? There's the verse. Why do you lose out a lot of times when you sin? There's the verse. Okay? It answers a lot of questions there. Your flesh is in battle with the Spirit, and they're opposed to one another to keep you doing from what you want to do. So there's always going to be this internal battle until the day you step foot into heaven. Okay, verse 18. But if you are what? Led by the Spirit. In verse 18, Paul says, led by the Spirit. This means the Holy Spirit is empowering us. He's guiding us. I think I gave this illustration before a few months ago um, about an information desk. When Don and I went to Breckenridge last summer, we wanted to go hiking up in the mountains to a place we'd never gone before. And so um, we didn't know a lot of the trails, so we went to the information desk there on Main Street, and I asked the guide, do you have some maps for some you know, hiking places? And he pulled out a map, and he you know, showed us where to go, pointed us, saying, you know, it's that way. Most information desk people, that's what they do, right? They give you a map and point. What would happen if he would have said, you know what, I'm an expert climber, I've done this. There's this beautiful scenery. It's a place that nobody knows about. Tomorrow at 6 o'clock, meet me, and I'll take you on a guided tour that nobody knows about, and I'll take you up this meandering, beautiful meadow, um, rocky cliff, and we'll go up there, and it'll just be us, and I'll guide you up there to see this, this scenic view. And that's a whole lot different, right? What's he, he ceased to be an information desk that points. What's he now? A guide that takes me on the, the path. Is the Holy Spirit a information desk or is he a guide he doesn't just point and say okay there you know go your way you know be blessed and have fun no the holy spirit lives in us and he guides us so being led by the spirit means he's guiding us he's empowering us he's leading us Um, and then if we keep going down here i'm just going to skip down to verse 25 we'll come back to the, the 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 two lists there the works of the flesh and the the fruit of the Spirit next week. But in verse 25, he says, If we what? Live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Some translations say, let us keep in step. Let's live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. The imagery of keeping in step was a military term that meant to stand in a row and follow a commander. So what's this imagery of the Holy Spirit in your life? He's guiding you. He's leading you. He's empowering you. You're lining up behind Him. You're following Him. You're walking in step with Him. He's the leader, the guide, the controlling influence in your life. What's that going to produce? The fruit of the Spirit. We'll talk about this next week. We'll talk about the fruit of the Spirit next week. Let me just ask you a question. Is it the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit? It's one fruit with nine aspects as opposed to nine separate fruits. Does that make sense? And can we produce this fruit in and of ourselves? The Holy Spirit has to produce. But can we pray for the fruit of the Spirit? I think one of the most important things we can do as a Christian every morning is, Lord Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you please produce whichever one you're struggling with that day? (laughs) Patience, kindness, goodness, um, and ask the Holy Spirit to produce that. And it's amazing how He'll do that. If you pray for patience, what's the Holy Spirit going to do? 
He's going to guide you, and you're going to keep in step with the Spirit, and He's going to take you to places where you're like, oh, man, why did I pray for patience? Because He's like putting me in situations where I... Yeah, that's what's going to happen. So be real careful how you pray. Let me give you this last quote here from John Calvin. Um, It's kind of a cool quote. He says, It's the Spirit that inflames our hearts with the fire of ardent love for God and for our neighbors. Every day he mortifies or kills, and every day he consumes more and more of the vices of our evil desire or greed, so that if there are some good deeds in us, these are the fruits and the virtues of his grace. And I love this. Without the Spirit, there is in us nothing but darkness of understanding and perversity of heart. A lot of people look at John Calvin and say, isn't he the Calvin guy that talks about predestination? Maybe. I mean, if you read the Institutes of Christian Religion, yes. Out of all the Protestant reformers and a lot of, almost a lot of church historians, what one guy talked more about the Holy Spirit than any... John Calvin talked more about prayer and the Holy Spirit than a lot of other people give him credit for. You read, some, you read his chapters in the Institutes of Christian Religion on prayer... There's some powerful powerful stuff in there. So he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit, but he says the Holy Spirit inflames our hearts with the love for Christ. And if the Holy Spirit's not in us, there's nothing but darkness of understanding and perversity of heart. So the Holy Spirit's indispensable to our Christian lives. We need desperately need Him. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is not an it. He's not a ghost floating around like Casper. It's not an it like some force, like the force. Midi-chlorians floating around with Qui-Gon Jinn and Yoda trying to... Some of you Star Wars people have no idea what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit is a He. He's the third person of the Trinity, a divine person. So let's pray, and then we'll look at the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not sure how, where, how far we're going to go next week, but we'll probably jump into Ephesians. We're just going to keep going, okay? Ephesians. And again, guys, this is an overview class, so we're not doing a verse-by-verse exposition. I mean, we'd be here. I'm trying to just kind of get some highlights and kind of weave church history and theology and wherever we happen to go as we look at these. So um, that's kind of where we're going. So let's pray, and then we'll we'll go. Father, um, thank you that you have given us the one true gospel. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for us on behalf of us, in the place of us. Uh, We did not deserve that death. We did not deserve that love, but you chose to to do that out of your great love for us. And so we're so thankful that you have given yourself for us. And Lord, help us to protect this gospel. Help us not be susceptible to other gospels. And, And Lord, just help us to be so grounded in the scriptures that we understand it's faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, to God's glory alone, because your scripture alone teaches it. And may we live our entire lives under your Lordship, Jesus, thankful for this salvation. And Holy Spirit, this week, would you, do, would you produce that fruit in our, the fruit of your Spirit in our lives? And would we truly walk in step with you? Would we truly follow you and be in step and, and be guided and governed by you, that we would walk in, in true righteousness and holiness? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.